0: All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. I want to apologize for some of the audio issues we had on the previous episodes. I know those had to be difficult to listen to. want to thank anybody who take the time to continue to listen to them through those audio difficulties. Uh, we have those things resolved now. We are going to begin reading Chapter Two of The End of Policing. This chapter is entitled The Police Are Not Here to Protect You. The police exist to keep us safe, or so we are told by mainstream media and popular culture. TV shows exaggerate the amount of serious crime and the nature of what most police officers actually do all day. Crime control is a small part of policing, and it always has been. Felony arrests of any kind are a rarity for uniformed officers, with most making no more than one a year. When a patrol officer actually apprehends a violent criminal in the act, It is a major moment in their career. The bulk of police officers work in patrol. They take reports, engage in random patrol, address parking and driving violations and noise complaints, issue tickets and make misdemeanor arrests for drinking in public possession of small amounts of drugs or the vague, quote, disorderly conduct, end quote. Officers I've shadowed on patrol describe their days as, quote, 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror, end quote. And even that 1% is a bit of an exaggeration for most officers. Even detectives, who make up only about 15% of police forces, spend most of their time taking reports of crimes that they will never solve and in many cases will never even investigate. There is no possible way for police to investigate every reported crime. Even homicide investigations can be brought to a quick conclusion if no clear suspect is identified within two days, as the television reality show The First 48 emphasizes. Burglaries and larcenies are even less likely to be investigated thoroughly or at all. Most crimes that are investigated are not solved. The liberal view of policing. I grew up on shows like Adam 12, which portrayed police as dispassionate enforcers of the law. Hollywood, in the 60s and 70s, was helping the Los Angeles Police Department, LAPD, manufacture a professional image for itself in the wake of the 1965 Watts riots. Today, we are watching police dramas and reality TV shows with a similar ethos and purpose. Some are more nuanced than others but by and large, these shows portray the police as struggling to fight crime in a complex and, at times, morally contradictory environment. Even when police are portrayed as engaging in corrupt or brutal behavior, as in Dirty Harry or The Shield, it is understood that their primary motivation is to get the bad guys. It is largely a liberal fantasy that the police exist to protect us from the bad guys. As the veteran police scholar David Bailey argues, quote, The police do not prevent crime. This is one of the best-kept secrets of modern life. Experts know it, the police know it, but the public does not know it. Yet the police pretend that they are society's best defense against crime and continually argue that if they are given more resources, especially personnel, they will be able to protect communities against crime. This is a myth, end quote. Bailey goes on to point out that there is no correlation between the numbers of police and crime rates. Liberals think of the police as the legitimate mechanism for using force in the interest of the whole society. For them, the state, through elections and other democratic processes, represents the general will of society as well as any system could. Those who act against those interests, therefore, should face the police. The police must maintain their public legitimacy by acting in a way that the public respects and is in keeping with the rule of law. For liberals... Police reform is always a question of taking steps to restore that legitimacy. That is what separates the police of a liberal democracy from those of a dictatorship. This is not to say that liberals believe that U.S. policing is without problems. They acknowledge that police sometimes violate their principles, but see this as an individual failing to be dealt with through disciplinary procedures or improvements to training and oversight. If entire police departments are discriminatory, abusive, or unprofessional, then they advocate efforts to stamp out bias and bad practices through training, changes in leadership, and a variety of oversight mechanisms until legitimacy is reestablished. They argue that racist and brutal cops can be purged from the profession and an unbiased system of law enforcement reestablished in the interest of the whole society. They want the police to be better trained, more accountable, and less brutal and racist, laudable goals, but they leave intact the basic institutional functions of the police, which have never really been about public safety or crime control. Political scientist Naomi Morikawa points out that this liberal misconception led to the inadequate police and criminal justice reforms of the past. Liberals, according to Morikawa, want to ignore the profound legacy of racism. Rather than admit the central role of slavery and Jim Crow in both producing wealth for whites and denying basic life opportunities for blacks, they prefer to focus on using a few remedial programs backed up by a robust criminal justice system to transform black people's attitudes so that they will be better able to perform competitively in the labor market. The result, however is that black Americans start from a diminished position that makes them more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system and to be treated more harshly by it. What is missing from this liberal approach is any critical assessment of what problems the state is asking the police to solve and whether the police are really the best suited to solve them. The reality is that the police exist primarily as a system for managing, and even producing inequality by suppressing social movements and tightly managing the behaviors of poor and non-white people, those on the losing end of economic and political arrangements. Bailey argues that policing emerged as new political-economic formations developed, producing social upheavals that can no longer be managed by existing private, communal, and informal processes. This can be seen in the earliest origins of policing, Which were tied to three basic social arrangements of inequality in the 18th century slavery, colonialism, and the control of a new industrial working class. This created what Alan Silver calls a, quote, police society, end quote, in which state power was significantly expanded in the face of social upheavals and demands for justice. As Kristen Williams points out, quote, the police represent the point of contact between the coercive apparatus of the state in the lives of its citizens, end quote. In the words of Martin Neoclius, police exist to, quote, fabricate social order, end quote, but that order rests on systems of exploitation, and when elites feel that this system is at risk, whether from slave revolts, general strikes, or crime and rioting in the streets, they rely on the police to control those activities. When possible, The police aggressively and proactively prevent the formation of movements and public expressions of rage, but when necessary, they will fall back on brute force. Therefore, while the specific forms that policing takes have changed as the nature of inequality and the forms of resistance to it have shifted over time, the basic function of managing the poor, foreign, and non-white on behalf of a system of economic and political inequality remains. And that brings us to a changing of the, uh, the theme within this chapter, and what sticks out to me within this, this first portion of chapter two is the, the perspective of liberals, and policing. I think that very often you hear about the perspective of conservatives and policing, and uh, it's not very often you hear about the perspective of liberals and policing, and I think that's important for people who live in cities or, or states or areas that are democratically controlled as opposed to being republic uh, controlled by Republicans because it gives you an insight as to why you can live in an area that's controlled by Democrats and still be dealing with uh, similar, some similar negative aspects that people sort of equate to conservatism. And here they speak about how liberals, how liberals have a desire to reform policing, but they don't have a desire to analyze the, the institutional, the institutional and historic uh, racist roots of policing. And so they're willing to try to give more training to police officers, but they're not willing to take the time to deal with the reasons that police officers are in certain communities to begin with, uh, they're willing to try to do things to to change uh, racist and violent police departments, but they're not willing to do things to change uh, the communities that are inside that are in those cities where these police departments are stationed at, and that just points out how many, how often half measures are used when it comes to issues that predominantly affect black people, that issues that predominantly affect people of color, issues that predominantly affect poor people. And that is one of the commonalities that exists between the left and the right is that whether it be Democrats or Republicans, their one their main goals, their main priorities are rooted in capitalism. And since capitalism is something that's rooted in racism, you will the parties that exist in this country will continue to do things that don't adequately address issues that Black people and poor people uh, deal with on a regular basis. I think one of the other things that's important about this, the the portion that we read here, is how how mainstream media, how uh, enter- the entertainment industry, how they portray police officers in a certain light. And people who don't deal with police departments on a regular basis, who don't deal with police officers on a regular basis, sort of take their cues on their perceptions of the police from entertainment and from uh, mainstream media and movies and TV shows and things like that. And those things are very far from what the reality of what policing is in this country. And I think that those are all very important talking points when it is time to start articulating Uh, some of these issues around policing. Uh, Here, then, I'm what? One second here. The original police force. Most liberal and conservative academics attempt to counter this argument by pointing to the London Metropolitan Police, held up as the, quote, original, end quote, police force. Created in 1829 by Sir Robert Peel from whom the, quote, Bobbies, end quote, get their name, this new force was more effective than the informal and unprofessional, quote, watch, end quote, or the excessively violent and often hated militia and army. But even this noble endeavor had at its core not fighting crime, but managing disorder and protecting the property classes from the rabble. Peel developed his ideas while managing the British colonial occupation of Ireland and seeking new forms of social control that would allow for continued political and economic domination in the face of growing insurrections, riots, and political uprisings. For years, such quote, outrages end quote, have been managed by the local militia and, if necessary, the British Army. However, colonial expansion and the Napoleonic Wars dramatically reduced the availability of these forces just as resistance to British occupation increased. Furthermore, armed troops had limited tools for dealing with riots and other forms of mass disorder. Too often, they were called upon to open fire on crowds, creating martyrs and further inflaming Irish resistance. Peel was forced to develop a lower cost and more legitimate form of policing, a, quote, peace preservation force, end quote, made up of professional police who attempted to manage crowds by embedding themselves more fully in rebellious localities than identifying and neutralizing troublemakers and ringleaders through threats and arrest. This led eventually to the creation of the Royal Irish Constabulary, Constu- Constabulary, which for about a century was the main rural police force in Ireland. It played a central role in maintaining British rule and an oppressive agricultural system dominated by British loyalists, a system that produced widespread poverty, famine, and displacement. The signal event that showed the need for a professional police force was the Peterloo Massacre of 1819. In the face of widespread poverty, combined with the displacement of skilled work by industrialization, movements emerged across the country to call for political reforms. In August 1819, tens of thousands of people gathered in central Manchester only to have the rally declared illegal. A cavalry charged with sabers killed a dozen protesters and injured several hundred more. In response, the British state developed a series of vagrancy laws designed to force people into, quote, productive, end quote, work. What was needed was a force that could both maintain political control and help produce a new economic order of industrial capitalism. As Home Secretary, Peel created the London Metropolitan Police to do this. The main functions of the new police, despite their claims of political neutrality, were to protect property, quell riots, put down strikes, and other industrial actions, and produce a disciplined industrial workforce. This system was expanded throughout England, which was a in movements against industrialization. Ludides resisted exploitation through workplace sabotage. Jacobins, inspired by the French Revolution, were a constant source of concern. The most threatening, however, were the Chartists, who called for fundamental democratic reforms on behalf of impoverished English workers. Local, non-professional constables and militias were unable to deal with these movements effectively or enforce the new vagrancy laws. At first, they requested the services of the new London police, who had proven quite capable of putting down disturbances and strikes with minimal force. That force, however, always had the patina of central government intervention, which often further inflamed movements. So eventually, towns created their own full-time professional police departments based on the London model. The London model was imported into Boston in 1838 and spread through northern cities over the next few decades. That model had to adapt to the United States, where massive immigration and rapid industrialization created an even more socially and politically chaotic environment. Boston's economic and political leaders needed a new police force to manage riots and the widespread social disorder associated with working classes. In 1837, The Broad Street Riots involved a mob of 15,000 attacking Irish immigrants. This was quelled only after a regiment of militia, including 800 cavalry, was called onto the streets. Following this, Mayor Samuel Elliott moved to create a professional civilian police force. New York leapfrogged over Boston, creating an even larger and more formal police force in 1844. New York was exploding with new immigrants who were being chewed up by rapid and often cruel industrialization, producing social upheaval and immiseration that was expressed as crime, racial and ethnic strife and labor unrest. White and black dock workers went on strike and undertook destructive sabotage actions in 1802, 1825 and 1828. There were larger waves of strikes by skilled workers being displaced by mass production in 1809, 1822, and 1829. These culminated in the formation of the Working Men's Party in 1829, which demanded a 10-hour day and led to the founding of the General Trade Union in 1833. Rioting that was less obviously political was widespread during this period, sometimes occurring monthly. During the 1828 Christmas riot. 4,000 workers marched on the wealthy districts, beating up blacks and looting stores along the way. The night watch assembled to block them, but gave way to the horror of the city's elite, who watched events unfold from their mansions and a party at the city hotel. In response, newspapers began calling for a major expansion and professionalization of the watch, which ended with the formation of the police. Wealthy Protestant nativists feared and resented the new immigrants who were often Catholic, uneducated, disorderly, politically militant, and prone to voting Democratic. They attempted to to discipline and control this population by restricting drinking, gambling, and prostitution, as well as much more mundane behaviors like how women wore their hair, the lengths of bathing suits, and public kissing. The formation of the Chicago police was directly tied to such efforts. Law and Order Party Mayor Levi Boone established the first, quote, special force, end quote, following his election in 1855 with the express intent of enforcing a variety of nativist morality laws, including restrictions on drinking. In response to the arrest of several dozen saloon keepers, a group comprised mostly of German workers attempted to free them, leading to the lager beer beer riots. According to historian Sam Mitrani, local elites responded by holding a, quote, law and order, end quote, meeting to demand an even larger and more professional police body. The next week, the city council responded by creating the Chicago's first official police force. And this isn't the end of this. This isn't a changing of the theme within this chapter yet. Sorry about that, y'all. We outside. This isn't a changing of the theme within this chapter yet, but I want to reflect on some of the things that were just pointed out. And so as we hear about the origins of of the original police force, or as we hear about origins of the police force, we go across the, across the ocean to Europe, and we learn about the Bobbies, which were created in... 17th century in 1829. And we see that this was the first organized police, organized professional police force. That before then it was militias used or armies that were used to try to uh, enforce social control. And we see that this these Bobbies were not created to protect people. Uh, they were instead created to protect property. They were instead created to protect the status quo. And so we see that once America adopts this concept of policing that was existing in Europe as a form of control, that they adapted to the things that they wanted to control here in the United States. And one of the things that when you go to the look in the 17th, 17th century, look and uh, read about the 1800s, one of the main things that was trying to be controlled by the American elites was and by the American politicians was the working class people. They were trying to control labor, uh, protest. And we live in a time where unions are something that is a lot more common now. But the further back you go, the more contentious it would be when people were trying to unionize and create unions, when people were trying to get labor rights. And we still see it even now that big businesses and big companies fight against uh, their workers having rights and their workers being able to unionize and their workers being able to organize. And when you go back to the 1800s, they, the way that they would fight against those things was they had made it illegal to picket. They had made it illegal to uh, unionize. They had made it illegal to protest the the unfair working conditions that existed. And so the police were there to uphold those unfair conditions that existed. And so all through the 1800s, police officers would be deployed and police departments were being deployed and being created to try to continue to subjugate working class people. And I think one of the things that's important to be able to articulate about why we must be able to or, or why they want I think one of the things that's important to know about why they wanted to stop people from unionizing and organizing around some of these working class issues and these labor issues was because the fact that it pierced some of the racism uh, when you read here about white and black duck, uh, white and black dock workers going on strikes, which were illegal at, at, a, at a time. I hope I'm not misspeaking. I'm pretty sure, you know, a certain places of striking was illegal. But one of the things that would happen is when people would be trying to fight against these unfair labor issues, they would unite. White people and black people alike would unite on those things. They would have a, common, a, a commonality that they could have, that they had with one another. And that was dangerous to the status quo. And so uh, we just... I, I, well, I guess what I'm trying to articulate is just that it's important to understand that even before policing was something that was existing in the way that we know it now to be something that upholds the status quo when subjugating communities of color and subjugating poor communities. It was something that upholded this upheld the status quo of subjugating workers it upheld the status quo of exploiting the working class and. And these are the origins of this institution. And a lot of times people speak about policing without having an understanding of some of the origins of the of the institution. And I think that's something that's very important to have. Uh, and we see here the the cities that were in the forefront, we see that Boston was in the forefront. We see that New York and Chicago were cities that were in the forefront of of un, of of unveiling these police forces. And when you look in 2022 and think about some of the places where crime is the most prevalent and violence is the most prevalent, it's those some of those still those same places. We've read multiple books speaking about uh, some of the negative aspects that have existed in the city of Chicago and how often the people who deal with those negative aspects are, are black people and people of color. It was the creation of police that made widespread enforcement of vice laws and even the criminal code possible for the first time. These morality laws both gave the state greater power to intervene in the social lives of the new immigrants and opened the door to widespread corruption. Vice corruption was endemic in police departments across the country. While station house basements often housed the homeless and officers managed a large population of orphaned youth, As Eric Monikin points out, these efforts were primarily designed to surveil and control this population rather than provide meaningful assistance. America's early urban police were both corrupt and incompetent. Officers were usually chosen based on political connections and bribery. There were no civil service exams or even formal training in most places. They were also used as a tool of political parties to suppress opposition voting and spy on and suppress workers' organizations, meetings, and strikes. If a local businessman had close ties to a local politician, he needed only to go to the station and a squad of police would be sent to threaten, beat, and arrest workers as needed. Payments from gamblers and, later, bootleggers were a major source of income for officers with payment increasing up the chain of command. This system of being, quote, on the take, end quote, remains standard procedure in many major departments until the 1970s when resistance emerged in the form of whistleblowers like Frank Serpico. Corruption remains an issue, especially in relation to drugs and sex work, but tends to be more isolated, less systemic, and subject to some internal disciplinary controls as liberal reformers have worked to shore up police legitimacy. The primary jobs of early detectives were to spy on political radicals and other troublemakers and to replace private thief catchers who recover stolen goods for a reward. Interestingly, oh, I think we, okay, we got some. One second, I got to change the batteries real quick here. Okay, sorry about that. Batteries went out on us, so I'm going to reread that, this paragraph real quick. The primary jobs of early detectives were to spy on political radicals and other troublemakers and to replace private thief catchers who recover stolen goods for a reward. Interestingly, very few thieves ended up getting caught by the new police. In many instances, they worked closely with thieves and pickpocketers, taking a cut of their earnings and acting as fences by exchanging stolen merchandise for a reward rather than having to sell the goods on the black market as a heavy discount at a heavy discount early detectives like Alexander quote clubber and quote Williams amassed significant fortunes in this trade. The extent of police corruption was so great that business leaders, journalists, and religious leaders banded together to expose corruption and inefficiency and demand that police both become more professional and more effectively crack down on crime, vice and radical politics. In response to this and similar efforts in the late 19th and early 20th century, policing was professionalized through the use of civil service exams and centralized hiring processes, training, and new technology. Overt corruption and brutality were reined in and management sciences were introduced. Reformers like August Vollmer developed police science courses and textbooks, utilized new transportation and communication technologies, and introduce fingerprinting in police labs. As we will see later, many of these ideas emerge from his experiences as part of the U.S. occupation forces in the Philippines. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And I want to reflect on. I want to reflect on the. The idea of control and how these officers and these police departments, their main their main reason for being created was to control immigrants who were coming over, was to control the 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 people who were having labor disputes and the the labor movement that was in existence. And when it came to things that were that began to be outlawed and become illegal, the things that they outlawed and made illegal were things that they felt was being done by this population the most. It wasn't that these things being done were uh, something that was having a negative impact on the society or it was having a, a, a traumatic impact on the society. It was that the people who they felt were partaking in these things the most were uh, groups of people that they wanted to control. And then with even with so then they made drinking illegal that made gambling illegal that made prostitution illegal and as we think about those things we sit here at a time where uh drinking has went back and forth with prohibition with being from being illegal to legal to illegal but we see it being legal now we see gambling being legalized uh in multiple places now uh sex work is something that people have been having very complex conversations about The need to uh, legalize and decriminalize that. You know, there's states, a state, Nevada, where it is already legally legalized. And so we see that it's possible for the society to exist in these things to not be criminalized, for these things to not uh, be illegal. And so once we understand that, we understand that it had to be motives for these things to become illegal. I think that's one of the things that's hard for people to to really wrap their head around sometimes with the issues of policing is that these laws are not created simply for the protection of people or simply to keep people safe. They're created with ulterior motives. They're created with, with certain communities and certain people in mind. Uh, And I think what we're going to do here is we're going to end this episode and We will pick back up reading chapter two on uh, the following episode or on the next episode. And again, I just want to apologize for some of the audio issues on some of the prior recordings. Uh, Hope to not have that be something that comes up anymore. I want to thank people for taking the time to listen to this podcast recording and for continuing to keep up with the Rock for Reading Daily podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another segment from the end of policing. Share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. We outside.